You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. So now what? Well, you can join me, Pastor Allen, and my colleague, Pastor Carissa, as we explore the spaces between the Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to Soft Idolatry. This is Season 1, Episode 8. We are moving out of our last series on the Ten Commandments, moving into a new series today. But before we get cracking on that, uh, hello, Alan. Hello, Carissa. What are you reading this week? I am still working my way through Searching for Sunday by Rachel Held Evans. How is it so far? So far, it's very good. And uh, I think it's it's something... I'm going to try this out with one of my Bible study groups. I'm not sure if they're going to go for it or not, but I think it would be a really good thing for... Uh, for, for older congregation members to be aware of the perspective of people who either are younger and in church or younger and not in church. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It gives a good uh, a good point of view. Yeah, I am. I'm reading a couple of things as usual. One of them is for the podcast. I'm reading Paul for Everyone: The Pastoral Letters by N.T. Wright. And I'm going to post a link for that. So if anyone wants a really accessible commentary to read that goes along with our new series, this is a perfect one. So I really encourage those who want to follow along with that to pick that up soon. And um, I'm working on a novel. I don't know if you knew that, but... I think I, think I did. Yeah. Uh, something that my writing coach recommended to me is a book called The Plot Whisperer. So I am reading that. And as I was researching for today's podcast, I got sidetracked by um, a man named Samuel Sewell, who was a judge in the Salem Witch Trials. And I picked up a biography on him called Salem Witch Judge. So I'm looking forward to picking that up this weekend and getting started. Mm, sounds interesting. I, I should also throw in there that I am uh, working through uh, with a couple of my elders, um, Start With Why by Simon Sinek, and he's a management consultant for want of a better way of describing him. And I've read this already, but I want to get some of my leaders to read it and uh, start thinking about how we all talk about and live into our why as disciples. That's really important to have a sense of of value and identity and, and whyness. Uh, yeah. I appreciate that you're doing that with them. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that we have lost our sense of relationship, not only to one another, but where we as the church fit into society. And sometimes church is just one of the many things we do that's part of this culture where I think we are really called to be disciples and outside of the culture, um, or, or, or I should say not completely enmeshed in the culture. We, we act within it. We are not monks uh, locked away in a cloister, but we are called to engage, but not be of the world. Excellent. And that kind of fits with our theme that we're coming up. Yeah, we are, uh, for our next series, we are switching to First and Second Timothy, 
And we are following the lectionary. We decided to get back into the Revised Common Lectionary for at least the next, what is it, six, seven weeks? Yeah, it goes through the end of October until All Saints. Okay, very good. So we are going to uh, stick with this series from First and Second Timothy and possibly some of the other, um, the other lectionary readings with it. Certainly this week we will be doing that. I will be doing that. Um, and we're going to focus on the idea of identity in Christ and how we see that in the scriptures and how we live that in our lives. Right. And how are you titling your first sermon in this series? My first sermon title in this series is Appointed to His Service. And it just so happens that we are ordaining a new deacon on Sunday. Uh, she was unable to be there for the ordination of her class of new deacons and elders because she had had surgery recently. And so I am going to tie in the ordination with the call to serve and even the children's message. Um, and also tie this in with some of the readings, but I think maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, you're farther ahead than I am. For sure. You're definitely ahead of me because I bailed on the whole idea of a sermon title this week, as sometimes I do when I get frustrated trying to sum it all up. And uh, mm. officially, my sermon title this week was Untitled Sermon. Uh-huh. Well, I think this is one of those cases where we probably need to read both of the texts for our listeners. I agree. And we're both using the same supporting text this week. Yes, we are both using Luke 15, verses 1 through 10, uh, two parables that will be very familiar to many of you dear listeners. And I think that it sort of uh, feeds into the idea of service, feeds into, uh, well, it feeds into the text from Paul, uh, or the text, I should say, from 1 Timothy. Pseudo-Paul, if it were. Yes, but now we are definitely getting ahead. Now we're certainly ahead in the outline. Well, how about I read this supporting text, the Luke 15 text. And um, after I read that, let's talk a little bit about First and Second Timothy. And I, I think that's an excellent idea. All right. So the supporting text, the gospel text that we both used this week is Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
This notion of redemption underlies our reading from the first letter to Timothy, in, in which uh, in which Paul, or someone writing as Paul, says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So I think it's important as we get into a book such as First Timothy, which is not without its controversy, no. To look at our text for this week, but in order to do so, to broaden our view just a little bit, so to speak. Do you mean context? Yeah, we need some context before we really dig into this. And um, this is an interesting, we did not plan this because we were just going back onto the lectionary, but this is an interesting follow-up to the Ten Commandments and all of our talk about covenant because this does talk about identity in Christ. Uh, this is about um, how we don't keep the covenant. <laughs> yes. So in, in many of his letters, the Apostle Paul talks about his experience as a persecutor of the early Christians. And in the book of Acts, we hear the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus at which point he stops persecuting Christians and starts proselytizing as a Christian. He starts yeah. preaching the word, starts converting, uh, starts establishing congregations, converting Gentiles to Christianity. And it is really one of the most remarkable repentance stories and turnaround stories in all of scripture. And the church, as it looks now, owes a great deal to Paul's efforts as one of the apostles. Now, this letter is one that may not actually have been written by Paul. I would venture there to is, say probably was not written by Paul. I, I would also agree with you there. Um, it is one of three letters, along with Second Timothy and Titus, which are referred to as the pastoral letters. And they seem to be written as general instructions for pastoral, what would you say, temperament? Yeah. Engagement? Yeah, and even like church structure and the way the church is supposed mm -hmm. to be built. Um, it also, 
is important to remember in these two that they are half of a conversation and we don't have the other side of the conversation. So we don't have the responses from these churches. We do not know if these are rebuttals to things that are happening there or in, in the positive or the negative, right? You don't write about something that isn't happening. So someone is wound up about some of these things that are happening in the church and is writing to the church about them. These are not, however, the things that seemed to really wind up Paul in some of his longer letters, the, the ones that we know without a shadow of a doubt were written by Paul, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians. Those are uh, nearly all scholars are in agreement that those are that authentically written by the hand of the Apostle Paul or by his corresponding secretary. But some of the others are not, and there are a couple reasons why the scholarly consensus seems to be on the side of not. For one, the vocabulary in these three letters is a good deal different from the vocabulary in the letters that are authentically Pauline. Also, it doesn't seem to reference a lot of the controversies that were there in the congregations that Paul was writing to in, say, 1st and 2nd Corinthians or Romans. Uh, in particular, in those letters, Paul is reacting against a notion that to become a Christian, first you have to become a Jew and that you have to follow as a faithful Jew first before you could follow Jesus. And I am very much condensing this, uh, but, but we see none of that in these letters. And finally, these letters mention church offices like elder and deacon and bishop. And that indicates a much more established church, a much more established set of congregations in which these offices need to be defined. Right. And when you look at later on in First and Second Timothy, and in some passages that don't actually make it into the lectionary, you also see some some theology and some church structure issues that Paul probably would have not agreed with. Uh, he had a lot of uh, female colleagues uh, that we, we even see in Paul's writings. He talks about some of these women who were working side by side with him and establishing these churches. Whereas if you go into, um, into, First uh, Timothy 3, 1, it starts to talk about the qualifications for leaders, um, either bishops or elders or pastors. It's kind of unclear what exactly they meant, but probably like bishops, but also deacons. And these are passages that are often used to deny women leadership in the church because it talks about being the husband of one wife and keeping children submissive and managing his own household um, I actually threw a book across the room a couple months ago. I don't know if I told you this story, but in my in my current ministry, I am pastoring two small churches that are working toward revitalization. So I just picked up a ton of books on Amazon about church revitalization. 
And one of these used this passage from 1 Timothy to deny women and even unmarried men any option of being in leadership. Basically, if the church has a woman or an unmarried man at the helm, or heaven forbid, a member of the LGBTQ community at the helm, then that church is doomed. Well, that rules us out. It does rule both of us out. And so I threw the book. I hope that makes you feel better. That I, I was, I've never been so angry I threw a book until that moment. But it was such a gross, first of all, a misinterpretation, I would argue, of this, this passage and some terrible um, bludgeoning with the Bible, right? Like proof texting mm-hmm. in a, a way that hurts people. So if we have all of this hurtful stuff, and we don't even know if it was written by Paul. Why do we have this in the Bible? Yeah, so that's a huge and complicated question right there. We could do an entire series on that, I think. Uh, yeah, because this was probably written by people who were trying to interpret Paul's theology. It might It's suspected to have been commentaries kind of on Paul that that wound up in our canon and we've got other issues too right like redaction yeah should we explain redaction for them yes i think you should okay so if you have ever seen say things in the news like um thing classified information from the pentagon or from the cia that is released to the public and you see in places where somebody just took a black marker and colored in some of the words so that you don't know the identities of people involved or all of the details of something. That's redaction. It's there somewhere, but somebody said, no, you're not quite ready to get all this information and took a black magic marker and blacked it out. That's redaction. Also, something we find in biblical texts is bracketing, where you have something that someone, like the Apostle Paul, said that is kind of radical, and then a later editor or redactor goes in and adds a little bit of text before and a little bit of text after, and it kind of blunts the message. So that, in a nutshell, is redaction. And some of these letters can be seen as redaction of Paul. I also read some speculation that perhaps some of the details in the letters were things that Paul wrote and that were lost in other letters. And somebody said, oh, we'd better just stick this in somewhere. It almost sounds to me like you might be saying there could possibly be a difference in the way we read different scriptures based on who they were written by? That could be part of it, yes. Um, and, And it could be that early church leaders were a little scared of some of the radical inclusion that is in other letters of Paul and thought that, uh, they needed to modulate the message just a little bit. Yeah, and for those who are 
really struck by this and want to do a lot more investigating, a great place to go would be the Pulpit Fiction podcast. And I put a link to that in the show notes. They have two really great episodes. They're also lectionary based, but they're geared a little more toward preachers and it leads the week up to that Sunday, whereas we follow up on Monday morning. Hey, what was that all about yesterday? Uh, But they have an episode where they interview a professor of New Testament theology who talks about the pastoral letters a bit and some of that background, and then also their their weekly podcast on this particular passage is is helpful, but especially that one kind of overseeing the, the pastoral letters is helpful. Yeah, and if we go with the idea that this was written later by someone else, we're probably talking at about the end of the first century, um, maybe even the beginning of the second century, so 80s, 90s CE or the early 100 CE, where Paul would have written his letters in the late 40s to early 60s CE. And this is a good place to to talk briefly. Again, this could be an entire podcast, but briefly on the idea of the authority of scripture. I don't want anyone to listen to this podcast and walk away saying, Pastor Carissa or Pastor Allen, do not believe that the scripture is authoritative. I absolutely believe that the scripture is authoritative. It is what we have that describes humanity's relationship with God for since the beginning. And this is what points us to God. This is what shows us Jesus. And we cannot, cannot, cannot take that too lightly. And I also, I, I, I venture to say that the reason to go into all of this historical consideration and all of this contextual consideration and where is this coming from is because I take the Bible too seriously not to give it that kind of time and effort. Yeah, I think that is really important. And, you know, just the history of the Bible itself, so many of the early church founders saw these letters as being important and of value. We don't just throw it out because we have these modern notions of plagiarism or authority, not authority, of... Infallibility. Infallibility, that, that, that it needs to be by the hand of the person whose name is on it. That was not a concern in the ancient world. So there is definitely something of value there. But sometimes we have to wrestle with something difficult, whether it is... Um, sexism in the text or whether it's a bit of scripture that just sounds awful on its face. And this painstaking work is how we make sense of something that was written down close to 2,000 years ago. And it is the work of making sense that then helps us to make sense of our lives today. Yeah. Do you, do you have anything else to say on the pastoral letters as a whole, or shall we talk a little bit about repentance? I, what, one last thought just in terms of chronology. Um, the Apostle Paul was writing 
between the late 40s to the early 60s, maybe mid-60s CE. The Gospels don't get written down in their final forms until after Paul's letters are written and distributed. The Gospel of Mark is the first. Uh, I think that is probably compiled in the 60s, maybe the 50s. Matthew and Luke are compiled in the last quarter of the first century. And then the Gospel of John most likely, uh, so when I say the last quarter of the first century, between the years 75 and 100 CE, as opposed to AD, we're going to use the common era as our moniker for that. Um, and, and these dates are not hard and fast, and there is scholarly discussion over them. But just as a broad outline, Gospels of Matthew and Luke between 75 and 100, and the Gospel of John somewhere between 100 and 125. Also, the name Christian is probably not applied to any Christ-following communities in the early, early church. When Paul is writing his letters, uh, everybody is just Jewish or Gentile, and this is a movement within Judaism, but it doesn't have a name like Christianity early on. By the time we are encountering these letters to Timothy and Titus, in which church offices are named, we are probably closer to that time of having the name Christian be applied to followers. That is a pretty important distinction right there, I think. Yeah, because uh, really this started off as a sect of Judaism. And now we're approaching yeah. the time where it began to branch off and become its own thing in a much more uh, significant way. Yes, um, but the the basic fact, even though we have all of this stuff out there, the, the, the reason we can't let go of this text in particular is, yet again, we hear Paul talking about repentance and how he was able to accomplish things for God, or, or how God was able to accomplish things through Paul after he repented. Yeah, we're not about to say that you should uh, disregard First and Second Timothy or not read them or tear them out of your Bible a la Dead Poet Society or anything like that, but um, rather to give the context that helps put them together. And yeah, it's really about repentance and what does that look like? How does that give us an identity? What is the, the purpose of repentance? And we see in the we see that theme in all of the lectionary texts this coming week, and you know that's that common thread between the Luke passage and the First Timothy passage. I encourage those of you who are at churches that read all of the passages, but maybe only preach on one, to listen for those threads in those sections of lectionary passages, like today, uh, yesterday's sorry, yesterday's thread of repentance. Yeah. Um... So there is, there is a joy in returning, in turning away from sin or isolation or lack of relationship, in turning away from that and returning to a right relationship with God and a right relationship 
with the rest of humanity. And we see that joy expressed in the parables that Jesus tells in the reading from the Gospel of Luke. The shepherd is filled with joy when he finds the lost sheep. The woman with the coins is overflowing with joy when she finds the coin that she has lost. Yeah. Doesn't mean that she is not happy about the other nine coins that she still has. She's certainly happy that she has those, but now she has all ten. The shepherds are certainly happy that the 99 in the rest of the flock have stayed where they were. This sounds an awful lot like uh, wholeness and shalom. Oh, completing yes it does. completing the set. Filling yes. that hole. Filling that void, which is just the essence of our call as disciples. Yeah. And in my context, uh, yesterday I focused on the idea that shepherds, the shepherd didn't leave the sheep alone based on what we know about the culture at that time. Shepherds would have shepherded together. So there, there were probably several shepherds with several flocks. So when the shepherd went to seek that one lost sheep, the other sheep were not just left to fend for themselves or to go wander off over to another cliff by themselves, but rather there was still someone there caring for and shepherding them. They had a babysitter, so to speak. And sometimes when we think about going out into the community or building up the, the church as a body, there's this fear that what about those of us who are already here? What about those of us who are already within the, the walls or already in the flock? And we, you don't leave those alone, right? They're not left alone. We have things like uh, denominational structures and collaboration with other churches and even elders and deacons for a reason, there needs to be someone to help care for the flock while others go out seeking the lost. Yes, and in fact, in, in, in theory, in, well, now let's go back to in fact. In fact, that is the fruit of relationship. The relationship with God in Christ is so powerful that we are or ought to be impelled to go out and seek more relationships, to go out and make disciples. It is that love that, that love that also underlies the Ten Commandments, that relationship that pushes us outside of our walls to go and make new relationships with the people who aren't inside our walls. Sometimes those are people from other churches that we meet at presbytery meetings or clergy association meetings. Sometimes those are people who are unchurched or formerly churched. And sometimes those are people who we are feeding either metaphorically or literally through our service to the community. I also really love the empathy with which the author of First Timothy approaches this at the beginning, whether this is Paul speaking or someone speaking as Paul or someone speaking as themselves who just happens to resemble Paul in some ways, regardless of what that, what that is, there's this great empathy 
in the beginning of this passage where essentially he, and I say he because it probably was a man writing at the time, uh, he's like, I'm a hot mess. I was a disaster. God grabbed me and pulled me out of that pit of despair and sin and awful muckiness. It's, it's this great reminder that nobody started off perfect. Not only that, it's a great reminder that anyone can be part of God's plan and God's work after repentance. We can't write off that one sheep and just focus on the 99. Preach. We can't go it alone because if we do go it alone, we're going to think, oh, I have to play my percentages and take care of the 99. And too bad about that one sheep, but he shouldn't have wandered off on his own. And I feel like a lot of churches today also have this idea that, well, that sheep wandered off and that's a shame. What can we do to call the sheep back? Mm -hmm. Sheep do not come when they are called by name. Sheep come when you go and you grab them and you drag them back. That's what sheep do, right? Yes. That's why a shepherd has a great big crook. Exactly. (laughs) That's to grab the sheep because they don't come when called by name. Now, I'm sure there's somebody out there who knows a sheep once upon a time that came when it was called by name. Good for you. That's not the norm. That's the exception. I'm not a sheep farmer, but I know enough about animals to, you know, sheep are not bright. You're not a sheep whisperer. I am not the sheep whisperer. No, correct. So like hold off on the angry comments that what is she talking about? But there, there's something to be said for going out and finding the sheep. It is not going to just wander back on its own or looking for the coin, right? Coins don't have legs. Um, right. It's And coins roll all over the place and they go into tiny little places. I can't tell you how many pennies I find all over my house every time we do a deep clean. They're in the couch cushions. They're like behind baseboards and under furniture. And they're not going to come back if I yell, oh, hey, coins. And they're not going to just show up magically on the table or in my pocket when I need them. No, but you have children, so you can pretty much guarantee that you will have to find them in couch cushions or baseboards or in crevices somewhere. Yes, I I find much more than coins in all of those delightful places, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. But, But the idea is, like, you can't just sit around and wait for the lost sheep or the lost coin to come walking back to you just because you got a praise team or you started a children's program or a new youth group. There, That's not how that works. You have to go find them first. You do. And <sighs> you're so eloquent. I know. I know. It's like you do this uh, for a living. <laughs> yeah, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> He's not really uh, a pastor, ladies and gentlemen. He just plays one on no, TV. I just play one on TV. <laughs> not only do we have to look for them, it's a reminder that every one of them has value. Mm-hmm. Whether they seem to be rejecting our values or not, they are still valuable in God's eyes. Yeah. We can't 
assign their value based on what their values are. No, or on that'll what preach. we think they are. Yeah, yeah, that'll preach. Yeah. And we need to seek humbly remembering that we were all once a hot mess. Some of us are mm. still a hot mess. Indeed. Present company included. Indeed. Which, if you don't have any final thoughts, would bring us neatly around to our discipline and our prayer for the week. Okay. Then, no, I have no other final thoughts. Tell us about our discipline for the week. I would love to. So this week, we're going to practice the discipline of confession. If you go to church on a weekly basis, this might be a part of your church service. I want you to make it a part of your everyday life as well. In our tradition in the Presbyterian Church, this tends to take place during the worship service, before the sermon, as we are preparing our hearts to hear this scripture read and to hear God's word proclaimed. We confess and Often that is in the form of a unison prayer of corporate confession. So a prayer where everyone prays together. These are the sins that we are all wrapped up in. These are the societal or cultural sins we're stuck in. And then we spend some time in silent prayer for our personal confessions. In some traditions, confession is a one-on-one -on -one with your minister or your priest. Uh, in other traditions, it kind of gets missed. And so I, the prayer that I am using today is what I am also encouraging everyone to just pray on a daily basis as you begin your day. Begin it with this reminder, not of how bad you are, but of how far you've come and of how gracious God is. I just got the nod from Alan. He was about to jump in with grace. Yes, and I didn't I forget it. <laughs> I did not forget God's grace. Fear not. Hmm. Uh, Alan, would you read for us Psalm 51, 1 through 10 as our closing prayer? Gladly. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Amen. Amen. Dear friends, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit remain with you always. Amen. 
Amen. Is that the end of a funeral? <laughs> it that's might the, be. That's Look, the end that's of my the, funeral benediction. That's the worship book I had in front of me, okay? You were supposed to prepare the blessing, dude. Yes, I was. <laughs> Sisters and brothers, for show notes, contact information, links to our Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and more, please go to www.softidolatry.com and you can always email us at info at softidolatry.com. <laughs>